The Dickheads are presented in color. Hello and welcome. Oh, excuse me. I'm doing the wrong podcast. Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from California to your brain hole. Welcome to the Dickheads podcast. Uh, this is a very special episode. And I have a special guest here tonight. Walter Nelson is the son of Philip K. Dick's very good friend, Ray Nelson, who we recently lost at 91 years old. And we definitely have been looking for a way to celebrate his life for the Dickheads podcast. So we're really excited to have Walter here. Uh, Welcome to the show, Walter. Thank you. And, of course, he was one of Phil's very good friends. So, yeah. Um, let's talk about his childhood. What do you know about his young, his 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 younger years? Oh well, let's see. Um, he uh, well, he was born in Schenectady, but lived uh, most of his childhood in Cadillac, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, his uh, his father was an electrical engineer, and his mother was the uh, the daughter of a lumber baron named Fred L. Reed. Um, so they, they didn't really lack for money. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, let's see, he, um, uh, he seemed to be interested in that, in science fiction from a fairly early age. He, he talks frequent, he talked frequently about, uh, his, uh, his visit to the, uh, New York World's Fair in 1939. And that's where he got his first science fiction magazine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and met uh, was it uh, Electro, the uh, the the smoking Westinghouse robot, and saw the uh, the, the General Motors Futurama and uh, all those other uh, um, very uh, uh, the, the whole the whole bright world of tomorrow message that mm. the 1939 World's Fair was uh, was putting out very much appealed to him. Well, and it's funny because um, I I talked to a very long running um, fandom person that uh, the other day, and they said Ray Nelson was uh, in in the early years of fandom was was a guy who was known for dressing up and having a lot of fun at conventions. That he was considered um, kind of like uh, one of those people that was really fun at the party <laughs> in those early <laughs> years, which is cool. Um, but as far as, uh, now there is some conflicting things. So maybe like he did talk about having met Phil when they were kids, but did he have a connection to Berkeley or was that just a story they told? Because they were both storytellers, mind you. Um, you know, cause he talked about meeting him at Hillside Elementary and I've been to Hillside Elementary, uh, in my <laughs> research on Phil uh, Ursula Le Guin also went there, which is interesting, but I can't, I don't find anything in, in Ray's history that shows that he would have been in Berkeley, right? Um, yeah, well, I don't, I, I'm a little uh, vague on, on their travels, right. but I did find in, um, in among my, uh, my mother's and my father's photograph collection when I was clearing out the house, I found a collection of photographs, some of which were were very likely aerial photographs, uh, taken by my grandfather, who was a pilot as well as an 
electrical engineer, and um, visible in these photographs is um, the um, the the uh, the tower at the uh, the the World's Fair on Treasure Island. Oh, that was built in 1938 and torn down in 1942. So mm -hmm. they were in the Bay Area right around 1940. Right. Yeah, and so that's it's one of the funny things because it's with Phil and his life, all the scholars and the people that are that we work on these things, we know so much of the movement of Phil's life that it's hilarious because Every time Ray Nelson mentioning that he met Phil when they were kids, a lot of the scholars were like, that doesn't make any sense. How did he meet him? And but they both agreed on it. They both said that this this was a thing. Although one time I think Phil said that he didn't really he said that he met Ray in the early 60s. So there is. But the but the other thing about that is Phil contradicted himself constantly <laughs> so it's hard to say but yeah. I, I just wondered if, if there was any and that's interesting that th that picture exists yeah 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 um so but yeah of course you know I, I have only uh only only a kind of sketchy concept of what happened before i appeared on the scene <laughs> right and uh and a little sketchy even after i appeared at least for a <laughs> right. few years um right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And because uh, these guys like to spin yarns, so we know that about uh, the situation. So, um, yeah. Do you know much about how um, how your father ended up in in Paris in the '50s? Because he was there at a really cool time and and doing interesting things there too, right? Yeah. Um, now his. Um... I guess his family, his well, his, his his parents and his brother, had gone to Europe just before then, and he joined them there, and then they went home and left him there. Um, right. My uh, uh, my uncle says that uh, they were in uh, they, that they visited Spain during that time, and my father acquired a guitar. Um, which I've got uh, is it. Oh, well, I got it somewhere around here, <laughs> which, uh, um, in, in, I guess, Barcelona. Um, and um, then my, but then at that point, my, my uncle went home sometime in the, in early 58, I guess. And right. um, then well, uh, my father met my mother at the Alliance Francaise, which is a language school. My mother was a Norwegian stewardess in training. And they, they, I guess they sent her to Paris to learn French. And instead, she married an American. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, it's a good thing he got left behind in Paris or we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was, uh, I was uh, born in Paris. My, my dad says that he met, uh, um, uh, that, that he met an, and, and hung out with the, the existentialists. Um, um, Mm -hmm. But uh, well, he definitely was known for hanging out with the Beats. Um, oh right? yeah, and um, he and Michael Moorcock were known for um, uh, smuggling um, books 
um, out of France that were uh, uh, banned in other countries, uh, especially uh-huh. Henry Miller books. I know that was like part of the story is that they were bringing banned books back. Yeah, um, that's what he told me too. Yeah, and which is which is kind of a cool, very rebellious uh, thing to <laughs> to be doing, right? Um, yeah. Well, he yeah. also said he said that he uh, he he earned a few uh, a few extra francs um, um, with that guitar uh, being mm. uh, Tex le cowboy qui chante um, the singing cowboy uh, in uh, uh, singing in uh, uh, you know singing for for tips at uh, various places around Paris. Um, well, that's cool and. What's interesting, too, is that, you know, this was early around, I think, I'm not sure if he was already active in fandom and science fiction before he got involved with the Beats, but it's... Um, I think he was. I think I think he became active uh, in science fiction in the late 40s. Right. When he was still a kid. Well, and um, it's funny because the, and we'll get to the propeller beating in a bit because <laughs> But the first time he wore the propeller beanie, um, it's it's in in the uh, Joe Walton's informal history of the Hugo's Hugo Awards. Uh, Ray Nelson wearing the propeller beanie at one of the earliest um, you know Hugo Award ceremonies is in the book. It's mentioned in the book okay. um, that uh, um, that that was while well, other people were in full. Flash Gordon costumes and things and cosplays that uh, Ray Nelson was walking around in his propeller beating. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing about that is by going to, to France and getting involved with the beats, he was a part of that golden age of science fiction, but he was also into more radical things. So when the new wave came in the 60s, he was in a really great place in the Bay Area hanging out with that crew. You know, yeah, I, um, I, I, I vaguely remember um, attending some sort of meeting where Grania Davis, among others, was present uh, as a kid. And, you know, then I'd go off in the backyard and play. Right, right. Well, I think and I'll get to that, too, because those are famous, too, because I think by the, the torch had been passed to your father at a certain point, and he was teaching a, a lot of those workshops um uh, in the early 70s after um, Tony uh, Boucher, but after he died, um, I believe it was your father that kind of like took up the the mantle for a little while teaching at the Unitarian Church in San Francisco is, is what I read. But as far as, so we, meeting your, your mother, um, obviously, that, um, but much like Phil too, um, your mother was his Third wife, I believe, right? Already? Um, at that, yeah, at that point, yeah, she was his third wife. Yeah. And um, so, uh, this, you know, they came back to raise you guys, raise you in California, am I correct? Right? Yeah. Like was that the decision? Like, we're going to raise the kids in California? Was that why they came back or, or came to California? Well, my dad... The, the story he tell, told me was that he wanted to stay in France, but his visa had expired, and he couldn't renew it in France. And once he was back in the States, he was kind of there. Right. Um, and I guess the first thing they did was they headed to Chicago so he could finish getting his uh, degree. 
and then uh, um, and then they headed over to uh, uh, to El Cerrito, um, where I, I grew up, and I guess it was 1962. I think that or 61 maybe, because um, yeah, we 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 uh, we arrived in the United States in 1960. Um, I've actually been able to get the exact date, which I don't have the tip of my tongue, but uh, thanks to Ancestry.com, I found the uh, I found the arrival uh, the arrival uh, information for my, <laughs> my, my my immigration the immigration information from my mother. Got it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and so once he came here, like, um, and got to the Bay Area. It was he was initially he was very involved with the science fiction community almost immediately. Um, and by at this point, you would have been. Well, you were born in 1960. Sorry. to. I don't, I, I, 1958. 1958. Yeah. Okay, so about 18 then, months old when I came to the United States. Right. So so you um, I, I don't know. At a very young age, you must have been around a lot of these science fiction people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I, was, and I, I have very distinct memories of Phil because he spent a lot of time at our house and uh, and we visited him a lot. He even babysat me. But uh, the first, uh, yeah, getting off. Right, on sorry the, about uh, that. I got muted. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Now, if you're talking about Philip K. Dick babysitting you, we gotta we gotta grow. We gotta go into this a little bit since we are all right. Against podcast. What was that experience like? What do you remember of that? Well, I, mean, the, I, I remember just the, he, he had this house that, that sort of uh, was on the water and sticking out over a mud flat, and I enjoyed playing in that area. Um, but I also, uh, I do distinctly remember that the first time I ever touched a real gun was when I was being babysat by Phil Dick. And he said, Walter, you want to look at this? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, as I remember pistol? very distinctly, it was a it was a uh, a Colt uh, over and under Derringer. <laughs> so your parents thought, okay, the guy, the person that we trust to leave our son with, is Philip K. Dick. Okay, <laughs> right. And yep. so is this the house in 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 Marin County that it like, must have been? Um, you know, I I was quite young, so I don't have a clear sense of it but I, I i had this feeling it must have been marin county all right so what what's interesting about this time too and the idea that uh do you do you ever remember i mean you remember him handing, handing you that gun but do you ever remember him talking did he ever tell you stories or any of that kind of stuff or and did you have any idea what he did as a living like that he was a writer or any of that I knew he was a writer because I knew my dad was a writer, and I knew they were writers together. Right. Um, and uh, I think I'd even it, I, I became aware fairly early on that they had collaborated on a on a book on the Ganymede takeover. Right. Um, so um, yeah, I, I I knew what Phil did. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I I, I have you know, when I see see like uh, like film of Phil, it's a, there's immediate recognition. Oh, that's that's Phil Dick, um, but uh, I don't have really a lot of uh, distinct memories. I remember once, uh, uh, about the only one I have is is kind of a random one. I was uh, 
um, we were having we were talking about something, and I said that'd be like paying somebody to not think. And Phil said, "Hmm, there's an <laughs> idea." <laughs> I don't think he ever did anything with it, but. Uh, well, um, I, I have a lot of his uh, unused um, outlines from the archives. So I'll look for it. I'll let you know. But, um, <laughs> there is one that he never wrote about a world where insomnia was outlawed and people were forced to sleep to make them better workers. And for example, <laughs> it's just interesting. But so your father, though, played a very important role in the book that all of us at the Dickheads podcast, all three of our hosts, consider his ultimate masterpiece. And you may not have known this, but it was your father who did the final edits on the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, which we consider to be his best book. Because, I did not know that. Yes, because it was while he was living with Grania in Oakland um, after he left Anne and he was so frightened by the book, he wouldn't look at it. Like, and he said, Ray, can you, can you do the final edits? And, and Ray apparently came by Oakland, picked up the manuscript and came and did, and did the edits and was the one who mailed it back to, to New York. Um, and uh, so that's a really uh, fascinating, fun and interesting um, part of the connection between Ray Nelson and, um, and Philip K. Dick, because, in a lot of ways, um, you know, like Phil, Phil wrote the book, and it's obvious that Phil wrote the book, right? But um, it's, it's interesting to think that your father had an editorial hand in uh, what we consider to be one of his tightest and best books. So it's, okay. it's uh, uh, something to put out there. Um, and we only know that because he briefly mentioned in, in an interview at one point, he said, I was – he just – offhandedly mentions i was so terrified of that book i wouldn't look at it again i asked ray to do the edits and we don't know any more details than that we don't know you know how it went down but we know that and um although there's you know you never know with phil because sometimes he may have been saying that as a story to say like it's so fright as you know to sell the book it's so frightening i couldn't even look at it we don't know if the, if your father if we had asked your father he might have been like i didn't do the edits on that <laughs> you know <laughs> That's entirely possible. Right. Um, or, or he might say, oh, well, Phil said I did. Well, then I guess I must have. <laughs> I guess I must have done it. Um, right. And uh, so let's talk about the propeller beanie. What do you I mean? He's had to have talked about this a lot. And I love the quote that your father said that long after my my books have turned to ashes and dust, the propeller beanie will be spinning somewhere, which was uh, or something to that effect. It was, it was very funny because, um, you know, uh, noted, uh, there's a Dick Scholar, uh, David Gill, and he always loves to say, Ray Nelson, the inventor of the propeller beanie. <laughs> um, and uh, he must have been really amused by this, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, and he, yeah, he's, um, he, he was very, uh, uh, very pleased with himself for that. You know, whether or not he actually fabricated it is an open question. His brother is dubious. However, I look at the propeller beanie and I think, you know, my father was building model airplanes back then. And you could have taken the propeller off of one of those balsa wood flyers and put it on a stick and put it on an existing hat, you know, just a, a little beanie. 
and you'd have a propeller bin. You you know you wouldn't have it wouldn't be a a major uh, a major engineering feat. Um, but uh, I don't know whether he actually invented it or simply introduced it to fandom. Um, right. And I I I. Ha- I, I have a feeling that unless someone can like find a patent that predates his his wearing of it, um, that uh, we may just have to uh, you know just have to shrug and say, um, we'll we'll never know. But what is it uh, from the man who shot Liberty Valance when the uh, when, when 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 history and legend collide? Print the legend. <laughs> Right. Well, another thing that's um, interesting about the connection to that um, that your father and Phil had, by the way, too, is that um, since Phil had already had success for a decade before they before their friendship started, and uh, what's inter- what's really interesting to me is that Phil was very invested. If you look at all like the ancillary material to Ganymede Takeover. And all the quotes that you can find about it from Phil is that Phil was really active in pushing your father's career forward and really wanting to help your father. In fact, he wanted to write more books with him. But, of course, Don Wolheim, who was notoriously cheap about paying writers, um, didn't want to pay collaborators, (laughs) you know, (laughs) for, for more books. But Phil wanted to write... Phil and Ray had plans at one time to write several books together right and so it was really interesting that uh it, and i don't know from the perspective uh, around your father or how he felt about it later but it really seemed to me like phil was extremely supportive of of ray as a writer and as a person that he just really wanted to help him it just really seemed like that to me but um and I don't, I don't know if you know anything about that, but it's just, um, it's just really cool to see because if you see a lot of the quotes around Ganymede Takeover, he's like, he's suggesting that Ray jump on other books with him to Wolheim, and Wolheim's in letters saying like, I don't need to pay another another writer. I want you to write these books. And I think it's also because at the time too, Phil was feeling like he was slowing down, like he had overtaxed himself mm. writing. 63 and 64 where he wrote like five books in a, in his many months right but your father um eventually was publishing on on his own um yeah. and uh but before we get to that uh the next and and one thing that according now i'm only going by wikipedia on this but when your father was teaching these writers groups at the it, it according to wikipedia it says the first unitarian church in san francisco well, it just says San Francisco Bay Area, but it says one of his earliest students there was Anne Rice, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I uh, it, it actually wasn't in San Francisco. The, okay. The, the church was, uh, uh, it is um, actually on the East Bay. It's mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in, I think it's technically Berkeley, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a posh hilltop uh, suburb called Arlington. Um, and, um, in fact, that's that the family's had a connection to that place, uh, for many years. And that's when my dad's memorial next month is going to be at the, uh, at that Unitarian church. Um, now, um, I think it got started there. It was going to be a, uh, um, 
it was they, it was supposed to be like a free university, um, and that was a big thing in Berkeley back then, the free university, uh, right. where you know you just they'd round up a teacher and say, hey, teach stuff, and they did they were going to do a free university thing on writing, and then the teacher didn't show up, and my and my dad said, well, I'm a writer. And um, the, uh, the, the meetings then uh, moved to the, uh, the Berkeley house of a friend named Avis Worthington um, and went on there for many years. Really? Uh, and then eventually, I think it must have been in the 80s after I left, um, it moved to uh, my dad's house in El Cerrito. Um, but I, um, I attended several of those. I didn't really know the, I, I, I didn't get to know all of the, you know, the names of all the other people. I imagine Anne Rice must have been there uh, yeah. among them. Um, I, you know, I, I, I sat in on a few of them. Um, well, in your father's most famous short story, and of course we'll eventually be talking about they live, but yes, his most famous short story was was sold to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and. Although it was not during the um, era that um, Boucher was was editing the magazine, he was still kind of in an advisory role. So I'm I'm imagining there's a chance that that story oh, and and uh, turn uh, turn the sky I believe was his first turn one. off the sky turn off the sky yeah um, I'm sure they were workshopped at at because um, he because your father was in the last. Um, kind of group of writers that went to Boucher's workshops before he passed, and um, and so really a part of a, a really fine tradition in, in science fiction. A lot of big names came out of there. Did you ever meet Tony Boucher? Because he's a pretty famous I, figure in, in all this too. I don't. I don't remember. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I I met a lot of Dad's friends, but right. uh, didn't necessarily realize that they were. You know, famous or yeah. As far as like the lasting impact, I think one of the cool things, um, you know, so eight o'clock in the morning uh, is the story that eventually was turned into They Live. But just as a story that that he wrote in the '60s, it's an incredibly powerful kind of paranoid sci-fi story just on its own and. Whereas the movie is very funny, the story is very is, is very dark and hard hitting. Um, yeah, and it doesn't have a happy ending. <laughs> not at all. No, um, that had to be one that not just because of the movie, but it had to be one of those stories that he he remained probably very proud of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and turn off the sky is also kind of considered a a classic as well. Uh, of the short stories and that was really his first huge big sale and um so those are stories short stories that if our listeners are looking for stories that they want to read from from ray nelson of the short stories those are two that are must-haves and one of the cool things that i discovered in the process of doing my research for my virtual zen review was that there's like 18 versions of eight o'clock in the morning that people have done their own audiobook narr- narrations of on YouTube, <laughs> okay. right? And there's some, yeah, and some of them are really, really good. <laughs> you know, 
because it's a it's a it only takes like 12 13 minutes to read so yeah. a lot of i think my theory on this is that a lot of audiobook narrators are using it as a sample it's a story that they're reading as like a, hey look at me you should hire me to do these <laughs> and um and uh, it's kind of a neat thing that's out there so the story he I, I highly recommend I listened to I actually listened to two or three of them the other day for like a little bit and then chose one that I decided to listen all the way through that I thought was the best. Um, and I, in the show notes for this episode, I'll put the link to the one that I liked the best. So, people, yeah, OK, um, but as far as hit, it was really in the 70s that he hit his stride as, as a novelist. And a lot of people consider Blake's progress to be his masterpiece. Now, mm-hmm. I admit, I've read Virtual Zen, but of the novels, I have not read um, his three novels that he wrote in the 70s and Prometheus Man in 82. They're on my list. I'm going to get to them. Um, but I've read Ganymede Takeover, and I've read um, uh, Virtual Zen. But one of the things that's interesting for me is that Genemy Takeover, you can really tell your father's voice does come through because as somebody who's read everything that Philip Gajek's written, um, I can see his hand in it. And so that's kind of a cool thing. What do you know about, I mean, you were around, he was your father, when yeah. he was writing these books in the 70s. What Do you know anything much about his output during that era? Um, well, I mean, I, I was I was aware of it. And... Uh, um, I remember he he was doing a lot of uh, Blake research, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of reading, a lot of uh, you know going to the library and buying books and so forth, uh, getting everything he could on Blake, um, and um, and talking a lot about Blake at the time. He he got he was very uh, very focused on Blake and his and his world um, in uh, during that the creation of that. Yeah, and it really paid off. And I, I know most commentators consider that to be his masterpiece, the of uh, Blake's progress. Um, now, I, I watched a bit of the penultimate truth interviews with your father that was filmed in his office. And look, my father was a professor, and had, had and that office looked a little similar to me. Um, <laughs> as, as far as it was piled up with books and papers everywhere. Um, was his, was your dad's workspace always like that when you were growing up or was that one that, that slowly developed over time? Cause it looked uh, really cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it, uh, uh it's, uh, re- referred to as the ivory tower. Uh, it, it, it was an addition that was put in by the previous owners of the house. But, uh, you know, we, what we had was a two story house. And they just plopped a little penthouse on the very top. Interesting. Um, and so, yeah, you you know, from the from the uh, second floor, you'd go up a narrow staircase, and uh, there'd be this room with uh, windows on three sides, um, and uh, and bookshelves, and uh, um, it was. Um, I remember it had been very cluttered, and then my dad decided that it was time to become neat. And then it became very neat, and everything had little labels on it. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, I mean, it was always cluttered even when it was neat, but, uh, I mean, it used to be messy. But then then I guess he, he had this 
epiphany that it was better to be organized than messy. And after that, he was very organized. Now, one of the things that Philip K. Dick was known for, and this relates to your father, I, I swear, um, but one of the things Philip K. Dick was known for, and, and I'm working currently on a book that involves reading a lot of Phil's outlines and works in progress. And if you look even at like Ubik, or if you look at some of his most classic books, Vallis, he had a tendency to map out the characters and put real life human beings in his life as the inspirations. And a lot of times he would list three real life people per character. No, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and and your father shows up quite a bit. Um, in in um, and so what he'll do is like he'll have a character like Joe Chip in in Ubik, and then he'll write he'll write um, you know Ray, Hugh, and John, and like so for a lot of this, like we have to like when I'm looking at these things, I have to try and figure out who Hugh, Ray, and John are. And a lot of times, like, I know I know Ray, you know, and some of the names I don't know. And a lot of them, like, his his old boss at the record store is one of those repeated characters. But your father was an important inspiration for one of his most famous characters because he claimed to have based Roy Batty in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep on your father, and which, of course, was the character that Rutger Hauer played in yep. Blade Runner. Yeah, um, my, my dad told me that. Um, yeah. And, and my, mo- my mother was, uh, my mother, Kirsten, was the inspiration for Pris. So Roy and Pris were Ray and Kirsten. It's, it's really interesting how, um, but I have seen your father's name in more than one hour. <laughs> um, I, so I, it's, I, I didn't know he was more than just Roy Batty. Yeah. He was definitely Roy Batty, and what's really interesting to me too, though, is that when I look at pictures of your father when you're when he was younger, and Rudger Hauer, I, I can kind of see it, right? You know, um, a, a little bit, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting to, um, it's funny because Phil, more than most writers, was like really trying to like zero in on certain behaviors that his friends and people around him had. And so it's really interesting to me to look at these things to say, like, like how, in what way was he pacing these? You know, like, when he's listing these names, I don't know how or why he's doing it, but it's interesting. So your father did talk about being uh, the inspiration for Roy and Press? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I've uh, uh uh, I, I occasionally joke about being the the spawn of replicants. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. You do get that that call the claim to fame. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, another huge thing happened for your father in the eighties, nineteen eighty eight. Um, my favorite filmmaker of all time, John Carpenter, uh, came coming off my favorite John Carpenter film, Prince of Darkness. His next movie was was they live based on your father's story which had already been yeah. adapted for graphic novel and, and i believe um carpenter or whoever was developing the film found it from the graphic novel first that's what my dad said my dad said that uh, you know it had been it had been in print for for like 20 years um in various anthologies 
um, with uh, nary a nibble. Um, but uh, like a f- like a few days or weeks after it hit the uh, the stands as a graphic novel, uh, his phone was ringing. Hmm. You're right. And then, well, and it is. It made a really the imagery in it was incredible for 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 the film. And so it must have been a surreal experience for your father. The short story that he wrote. 20 plus years earlier and here it is a film in theaters everywhere right mm-hmm. like that had to be a really surreal experience too but um it's funny too because i love they live and i loved that movie when i when i was when i was young um but now that i've seen the story i i prefer the, the kind of dark tone of the short story a little bit more than than although i i still love the movie so <laughs> but um but it's funny because i think then that became his calling card you know after that you know yeah very much so yeah. you know, it it's um uh you know when i when i say oh my dad was a science fiction writer and people say well would i have heard of any of his stuff i've got something that uh, though I, I I find it disconcerting how many people haven't heard of They Live. <laughs> yeah, these days, yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because doing a Philip K. Dick podcast, I have the same thing where people say, well, what's your podcast about? And mainstream people, and I say, well, it's about Philip K. Dick. And they kind of look at me, and I'm like, Blade Runner, Minority Report, Total Recall. Then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, for literary types and science fiction people, Philip K. Dick is extremely famous, but, you know, for, for most of the mainstream, you know, but there was a moment there in the late 80s where where They Live was was right up there as one of those, you know, you know, famous movies. And was he, how did he feel about the movie? Was he happy with the movie? I know it changed the tone a bit, you know. I mean, I know yeah, he was. Yeah, he was, he was. He, and, uh, and, um, I don't want to go too much into it, but he had a lot of input on the on the on the making of the movie too. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, not not every writer gets that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, well, the chance to, you know, have your movie made by John Carpenter is pretty cool. Pretty cool moment too, and uh, interesting interesting guy, John Carpenter. <laughs> um, but then um, your father's last novel, and this is the one that I've read, so it's the one I know a lot about, uh, Virtual Zen. I get the impression that he wrote it in the 80s. There's a lot of clues that a lot of like little um, bits of humor that kind of relate to the late 80s, um, uh, even though it didn't get published till 96. Um, what I love about this book is like how kind of delightfully out of date it is. Um, you know, and I don't say this in a, in a, in a negative way, but one of the things I like about it is that you can tell it's written by an older writer who's writing Mm. about young hip things of the future. And I kind of love how anachronistic it is in a really interesting way, but there's also moments that for dickheads and it's going to be our dick likes my dick likes suggestion for the next episode of our podcast is that there's moments where you can definitely tell he's um, he's like kind of uh, homaging his friend. Like, for example, like when a guy's like having an argument with his door <laughs> in the book is very Philip K. Dick. 
Now, the only difference is Phil would have had the character not have the money to open the door, you know, is, is the big difference between. But nonetheless, it's a really great book. And I really just want to put out there that to people that, um, you know, the one that, that I that I've read already, I'm going to read them all eventually. But that one is really great. And um, so do we know, too, because I were there, I'm sure there were there novels that he left that he, you know, truck novels or things that, that are still around that, because I think. I, yes, um, I've, uh, I've been uh, collecting them. And, <laughs> right. uh, um, I've got, a, you know, a manuscript boxes with manuscripts in them that, that were never published. Mm-hmm. Um, in case at some point, uh, there's there there's a demand. Well, um, we should talk because I know there's there's certain publishers I know that might be very interested. But the other thing too is that there's archives. Um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if you've thought about where your father's papers are going to live. But one of the things that's cool for me is that archivists is that I visited Phil's papers and uh, those. For those of us who are fans of the genre, the, the ability to, t- like, I had the chance to touch the first Man in the High Castle draft uh, the last time I was in in uh, in Fullerton. I, I do think, um, I do think there would be people that would be interested. Let me just say that. Um, how, now, one thing that I wanted to get into really quickly, and then I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but... It had to be really interesting because Phil became much more famous after his death. And yeah. his work became, especially when Steven Spielberg's making Ridley Scott and Paul Verhoeven and all these big name Hollywood directors in the and for a while it was making the Phil K. Dick movie was 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 a hot thing. And then all of his books came back in print and people started to realize the literary genius of this guy, but not till after his death. Now, how was that for, for your father, who was his friend? Did he talk about that? I don't know. We, we never had that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 he, he might have thought about it, but he never never discussed it with me. Yeah. Well, you can tell in the penultimate truth documentary that he was very excited to talk about Phil. <laughs> you know, like that he enjoyed remembering phil you know that oh yeah 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 Yeah. i mean they they were they they were well as you well know they were very good friends yeah yeah and you could tell that he was very amused by him one thing that's interesting too and i um your father was is is, from what i've read was an atheist right Mm -hmm. and phil had all these um interesting religious ideas and one thing that i saw in one of the notes i I, because i'm Currently, we're about to record our Vallis episode of our podcast, which is, a big, of course, a big deal in the Philip K. Dick thing. And one of the things I saw in the notes when I was looking at things for the exegesis was, so the whole thing that inspired Vallis was that Phil claimed, you know, that he got shot by a pink laser beam from, uh, by God and downloaded all this information. And one of the interesting things that I read was that, when he talked to your father about it, all connections to religion, to God came out of it. Like he didn't tell it that way to Ray. And the thought was, 
that Ray was going to tell him it was a bunch of malarkey or tell him it was all bullshit. So he just didn't go there. And that's kind of the way I believe Tessa recounted it was that she had, she was kind of amused watching Phil because she apparently was hanging out with both of them and saw like, wow, Phil's telling this story very different for Ray. <laughs> the way he tells it for the rest of us, which was interesting and funny. But, um, and I should point out that uh, when I mentioned on the, um, PKD group that that you were coming on here that um you know Tessa said really nice things about your father about what a nice man he was so um but anyways um so I'm sorry I've babbled a lot <laughs> but um is there anything else you want to say about your father before we go about um you know ways that we can best remember your dad I know you've got the the celebration of life coming up yeah um well uh well he was i guess uh, i don't know i'm I, I, since he since he was my dad i mean he's he's always going to be just sort of you know that that guy that dad um, right which is you know it, it's very hard to see uh to see one's dad as being some you know a, 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 you know fully appreciating perhaps um, my dad's place in the world because he was just my dad. Um, totally. yeah. but, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I haven't read all his work. I haven't read virtual Zen, uh, that, you know, I, 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 I went off, you know, left, left home at, uh, uh, in, in 1981. And, uh, after that only just visited, uh, you know, a few times a year. So we, we kind of lost, uh, uh, lost touch uh, through the 80s, um, but well, but, but I guess he's just uh, I, I don't know a um, a storyteller, a man of of of, of great imagination, and uh, and also a man who was very very generous with his time and his attention for you know for uh, young writers who were uh, or pe- people looking for looking for uh, a hand up in the writing business. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, took the chance to carry on the tradition of Tony Boucher to keep teaching and keep reaching out and returning the favor that Phil led to him by like giving him his mm-hmm. first opportunity to publish a novel with Ganymede Takeover. Um, and uh, which, which, you know, one of the things that we first noticed that um, Ray gave to Phil was to help with his structure. And that's one of the re- uh because Ganymede Takeover has a much better structure than a lot of, of Phil's books. And um, I often think that that's what he gave to Three Stigmata as well, because I think he helped in that final edit bring some structure know. to it. That's, yeah. you know, that's up to debate. But, mm-hmm. uh, well, um, Walter, uh, it was excellent talking about your father. I know he was your dad, and and I had the same experience when my father passed. He was a political scientist, and he had huge influence as a professor. And you know, it was mind-boggling to me to meet some of the people that I had no idea, you know, that the different ways that he influenced um, uh, the world. And so, you know, as as Phil's good friend. Um, 
I think it's really important that the people in the Philip K. Dick community remember your father and keep his work alive. And um, so, and so can, uh, I, I'm not sure, I think, I'm not sure if we're going to get this on the air uh, out to the world before the celebration of life, but we, we, we have already posted the link t- to okay, our socials. And so, and you guys are uh, recommending that people like come in costume and propeller beanies and all that. Like, you know, wear, wear whatever you might wear to a science fiction convention. I, you know, I, 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 I want to keep it light because I think that's what he would have wanted. He wouldn't have wanted a, a somber ceremony. He certainly, uh, you know, even though it's going to be in a church, a Unitarian church, of course, you know, the, the religion sits very lightly on the, <laughs> on the Unitarian church. But we're not we're not going to have a clergyman. I guess I'm going to be the master of ceremonies. Um, and... Um, Certainly, if there's anyone who wants to say anything, I would love to have people, you know, give their testimonials um, mm-hmm. about my dad if they've got any uh, anything to offer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it'd be uh, be open mic night. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, um, I'm sure I'm sure some of his students will will find their way there. And well, I hope so. I hope so. I hope I can get the word out to to the uh, yeah. Well, um, and uh, I really appreciate your time, and uh, you're going to be maintaining the website, right, for for your father's work, because um, you're the one that did it, right? Yeah, That's I'm the, the one that did it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm. I need to figure out. I need to update it. It's you know, it's it's HTML, <laughs> very very uh, you know, 2001. Um, so it uh, could definitely use uh, use an update, use a use some uh, more up to date tools, um, and one of those things I need to get around to. Uh, right. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's one of those things too where uh, your father um, may have not had the energy to try and move those novels that he left behind, but there there are definitely people who who will want to see them. So that's something definitely to think about. And um, yeah. and uh, uh, I appreciate your time. And um, the uh, dickheads can find uh, what's the URL for for your father's website? Uh, RayNelson.com. RayNelson.com. All right, folks. Um, as always on the Dickheads podcast, we remind you to keep it paranoid, and uh, we'll talk again. Uh, thank you, Walter Nelson, for joining us on the Dickheads podcast. Thank you.